Are you a kiddo who dreams? Kinky dreams? Dreams of wearing pants like the ones you grew up with? Well, golly gee, dream no more. Kinky Dreams specializes in printing cute vintage designs of diaper prints, superheroes, and cartoon characters on adult diapers. These handcrafted pants will leave you feeling your full baby fantasy. If you want to get your grabby hands on one of these one-of-a-kind diapers, make sure to use promo code PLAYTIME for 10% off all Kinky Dreams products. Kinky Dreams, making your little dreams come true. Hello, 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 and welcome to Newsies Nook, a podcast where you can sit and relax while I try not to wet my pamps. I am your host, Newsy Baby. This week in Newsies Nook, I want to talk about two big topics, the debate over the term TBDL, or Teen Baby Diaper Lover, and Kink Therapy. TBDL, or Teen Baby Diaper Lover, garnered a lot of attention on Twitter recently and rekindled the debate on whether that is an appropriate term to use within the diaper community. It started when James Frost retweeted a post from another content creator with the term TBDL in its username, saying this has to stop. You make porn and put TBDL in your profile. That community does not exist, should not exist, and you're leading minors to your page. The profile in question is Chris Keaton, who has two profiles, a vanilla one, and another profile with diaper content with the term TBDL in its name. It would seem Keaton is not shy about using the term. A recent retweet of one of his posts says, I was told on Grindr enjoying TBDL is pervy, hashtag kinkshame. A constant misconception for the ABDL community is that there are minors involved, which is why using the term with teen in it could be seen as dangerous. So I asked my followers on Twitter, should the term TBDL be reserved to just 18 and 19 year olds in the diaper community? 20% said yes. 11% said no, and 69% said the term should not be used at all. Many brought up that while those who are 18 and 19 have the term teen in their age, being 18 means you're an adult and should identify as an ABDL, or adult baby diaper lover. One follower brought up that he uses the term TBDL to identify that he likes to be in a teen headspace. Sim brought up that this is a misuse of the term and causes confusion for those outside the community. Many brought up that terms like big, Middle, switch, and little are better terms for headspaces. A sub-debate that was sparked was should the term TBDL be reserved to just minors? One Twitter user admitted that as a minor, they did lurk on the internet to find diaper and age play content, but stated there should not be a space for minors because it is dangerous for everyone involved. ABY Sitter on Twitter held their own poll asking his followers their own experience as an underage ABDL. 53% said they did lurk online while underage. 24% said they communicated with others but did not meet while underage, and 7% said they did meet with others in the community while underage. From my own experience, there is a lot of misconception about the ABDL community. This misconception has caused me to sometimes hide my kink from other kinksters, and for a time, a sense of shame to share it in general. I believe the term TBDL causes a lot of confusion, and confusion I would not like to be associated with. I understand that minors will lurk, but that is why I put no minors allowed and I put my age in my profiles. Even for this podcast, I label it as content for listeners over 18. I reached out to Chris Keaton on Twitter and Instagram for his comment on the use of the term TBDL, but have not heard back. Ha! 
it's no secret that I'm a mega soaker. Sometimes I just put on a diaper, drink a little water, and bam, I'm leaking all over the place. And I'm left thinking, is it me? Am I the soaker? And then I found North Shore's Mega Maxes. Have you seen them? They say they can last up to 12 hours. 12 hours, I know! And they come in a variety of colors like white, pink, tie-dye, and blue. My favorites is blue. And the best part is it's anti-odor, so I can be my little stinker self all I want. If you want to get your grabby hands on them, just look in the show notes of this episode. I got you. It's like what North Shore always says. Be dry, be confident, be you. I believe mental health is so important. I have struggled to understand my feelings and thoughts, and going to a therapist has helped me immensely. One reason I believe therapy has been so helpful is because my therapist knows about my kinks. But I understand not everyone talks about their kinks to a therapist. This week in New Nook, I sat down with kink therapist Alpha Pup Red, who recently held a panel at CLAW talking about kink and therapy. We go over who may benefit from talking to a therapist about kink and how you can find and bring up kinks to a therapist. To me, it is if you are a kinky person and you want to go to therapy, that is kink therapy. Um, it's not it's not a type of sex work. Um, it is just kinky people deserve therapy, too. And is that because there's it's such a vulnerable thing, right? Kinks kind of expose this vulnerability within ourselves. Is that why it's such a such a um, gentle ground to walk on? Yeah, it's both vulnerable for us to talk to other people about these weird, sometimes taboo, sometimes controversial, sometimes uh, stigmatized parts of ourselves. And also when we're engaging with systems like the therapy system, these legal systems, there's some inherent risk to being misunderstood or even um, some people not understanding the differences between kink and abuse and saying, oh, you like to be tied up and hit. You're not fit to be a parent. This is not a good relationship for you. So um, it's both personally vulnerable. And then also there's a huge risk of the people you're working with not understanding you. Right. There's, there's a vocabulary that if you, if, if both parties don't understand, it could be screwed up a little bit. Let's go into that. Let's go into what are the big differences between kink and abuse in a therapy, in a therapy kind of vocabulary? Yeah. The number one difference is consent. Um, if you are actively ongoingly consenting to these dynamics, that is the main difference between kink and abuse to me. Um, it gets into some gray areas when you're saying people who, uh, in therapy school legally, we cannot uh, report domestic violence, for instance, inter, uh, intimate partner violence. And the excuse for that is, well, they're consenting to other adults. And that's not really what consent means. That's a misunderstanding of what consent is. Um, actual consent, as we talk about it in the community, that is what separates kink from abuse. Wow. I, I didn't know that you can't report domestic violence as a therapist. Nope. That seems kind of messed up, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. There's, uh, on one hand, it's really good because I believe therapy works because of limits of confidentiality. So I've had people tell me all sorts of difficult things that they've been a victim to or that they perpetrated that I cannot report. And that means that there's a safe space for them to explore it and process it. But also it feels really bad when I, I do couples therapy. And so when I really recognize that there is intimate partner violence going on, 
Um, I, I just can't see them. It's just not something that I can see personally, um, but it feels bad to say, well, okay, good luck. Um, I can't connect you to, I can provide resources to people and be like, here's a way to go. Here's some ways to get out, but I can't like call the cops and report anyone for it. Let's talk about consent for a second, because mm -hmm. I think a big part about consent is finding your voice and bringing up, yes, I want this. Don't no, I don't want this. Here's my line. What is your line? Right. And I feel like because nowadays we we meet a lot of our sexual partners online and we have these online personas, it's kind of hard when we finally meet them to have this voice. Do you have any tips on finding your voice within a kink space? Mm. talking like physically talking to people about it not just keeping all this information in your head whether it's uh, a therapist who knows the community and knows you whether it's friends in the community whether it's significant others actively having these conversations and practicing having a voice practicing saying i want this or not um, that helps a lot um, also going over like having um, exploratory experiences I I have um, a consent form that I will give to clients. It's a big yes, no, maybe list where you say, I want this, I don't want this, maybe I'd be into this in the right circumstances. And just being honest with yourself beforehand saying, okay, I know I want to be tied up and spanked, but I know that spit is too far. So, so being aware of your own limits before you meet up with somebody. This is probably a controversial question, but I will ask it anyway. Do you feel like going over your yes list, your no list, your maybe list, beforehand takes the fun out of the spontaneity of a scene so that's a personal call to me i find that that is an excellent form of foreplay um i in my personal life i'm a dom and so to have someone say i want you to do this to me and be like are you sure tell me exactly what you want and seeing them get worked up for it is very fun and so it's a it's very to me it's a type of foreplay um some people do appreciate more of the spontaneity and i get that that's just not where i'm at do you feel like for the doms out there, do you think that is a healthy practice to incorporate into their play is asking their subs or their partners their yes, no, maybe lists before a scene starts? Yeah, um, I think that it's a great idea, both so you're aware of the limits. When I, uh, the way that I approach being a dom is I'm creating a scene for you. So I know you want X, Y, and Z. Let me do a lot of X, a little bit of Y, come back to X, then Z down here. So having that freedom and flexibility to say, here's the tools that are available to me, I think that makes me a better Dom. Um, it's also, again, it's fun as foreplay. Is there something, now that we're on the topic of Doms, is there something that you feel makes a good Dom other than, other than being like macho and like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to dominate you. Is there like, is there something psychologically that like, that makes a good Dom? Um, the ability to listen. Um, both to a person saying, here's what I want, or here's what I don't want, but also like listening to body language in a scene, listening to people's reactions and being able to understand that and respond accordingly. Um, and whatever that means for you as the Dom is up to you. Um, the best Doms that I've had, even when like, like they're intense or that I've seen when they're very sweet and caring, they're engaged in that moment with the sub or subs that are there. And it's all about listening for me. So it's being engaged and being present, which for me, I've been going to therapy for about two months now. And I know that's a big thing for me is like, how do you, how do you stay 
present, right? When you're in a scene, you're thinking like, oh, it's not going the way I envisioned or any of that. Do you have, I know my own tips and tricks, but do you have any tips of tips and tricks of staying present and staying engaged? Fundamentally, a big part of it is trust, trusting the other person to listen to you, to respond to you, to respect your limits, but also trusting yourself to say, either I can stand up for myself if things are going wrong, or I can let go in this and I know that I'll be safe and be able to come back to myself once this is over. Um, there's some tricks around like mindfulness and breathing that I um, work both in my kink life and also in therapy around like grounding skills. Um, but those are kind of more surface level. If trust is not there on both ends, you're not going to have a good time. You're not going to stay pre present and grounded. So once I do have the trust, I'm very curious, what are some of these grounding techniques? Yeah. Um, mindfulness is a really great one. So um, mindfulness, people think about it as uh, meditation and breathing, and those skills can translate to a lot of different areas. So um, when I am doing an impact scene with the sub and I can tell that they're all tight, I will literally coach them through breathing and then I'll add impact in addition to their breathing. Um, when we're breathing like that, it tells our body I am safe. I, even if I am being physically harmed, I'm not under attack. And so it allows us to translate pain into pleasure in that way. Um, uh, if people are dissociating, one of the things I'll do is called uh, tappy fingers. It's a very creative name. And you tap your pinky to your thumb and then your ring finger and then your middle finger and then your index finger. And you do that on both sides, but in opposite directions. And it's just enough mental effort that you stay present in the moment. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh, wait, I can't even do it. <laughs> exactly. It takes- a, wow, You have to really focus to do that. Yeah. So you are present in what's going on. You're not dissociating uh, around you. Um, the other thing is to pay attention to the sensations around you. Not only the physical sensations, but also what do you smell? What do you see? What do you hear? Not only the person speaking, but like right now, I can hear birds chirping out some window. I can hear the train going past every couple of minutes, like tuning into the here and now, the physical space of it is 3.30 p.m. Chicago time. I'm only focused on what's going on right now. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm not thinking about the past. I'm attuned to the present moment. So now I have a follow-up question because you brought up dissociating it disassociating. And I feel like I do that sometimes when I'm overwhelmed and too many things. And I really love this trick you just gave. Is it rude during a scene if I feel a sensory overload to say like, hey, I'm, can we stop for a second? Or like, what is it? What is it like a proper way to do it? Especially if I'm nervous and I'm like, oh, I don't want to ruin the scene. Mm. I'd say it's okay to ruin a scene. I wouldn't say it's ruining it either. But if you're not having a good time, if you were feeling Feeling overloaded and dissociating, the scene's already not going where you want it to go. It's so much better to reset, ground yourself, re-engage if you feel okay in that moment or re-engage later. Um, you using a safe word is never ruining the scene. If you have to use a safe word, something's already gone awry. And if I don't have a safe word, just saying like, hey, could we ground ourselves for a second? That hmm. To you as a dom, is that a... Is that a, oh, okay. Or is that kind of like a, okay, like, cool. Mm -hmm. I love it when people are able to communicate their needs to me. Um, 
sometimes there is subs who are very like, I need this and I need this. I'm like, you don't actually need this. So I'm going to push you a little bit further. But if someone's saying like, Hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I need to ground myself. That is a very reasonable need. And I, as a dom, I would respect that anytime. I have a personal question. Are you switch? <laughs> Only for my sir. Cause I was, my follow-up question is, do you think a good dom has to experience being a sub to be a good dom? I think it helps. I don't think it's a requirement, um, but I think understanding what the person that you are doming is experiencing, for me at least, has really helped informed how I am a dom. Um, I don't think it's a requirement. I do think it helps. I think it helps too. I mean, I don't do it very often, but I think it helps. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to therapy. So we brought up before the interview started about how, you know, kinks are very vulnerable and maybe you know, if you are doing therapy, you want to bring these up, but like, how do you bring these up? So how do you find a therapist that is open to talking about kinks? Yeah, um, there's uh, a couple different ways of going about it. There are people who mark themselves specifically as kink aware, kink knowledgeable. Um, there's a, a database uh, of, it's called the Kink Aware Professionals Network. Um, and it is a list of doctors and lawyers and therapists who all mark themselves at least as being kink aware. Um, so there are people that specifically mark themselves as that. If you have the means, if you have the privilege to be able to find a therapist and match that way, um, that's a really good way of finding a kink affirming therapist. Um, you also, depending on why you want to go to therapy and how you want to involve kink, you don't necessarily need a therapist who is super knowledgeable about it at the start. You can provide them with resources. You can provide them with like readings. A good therapist would say, hmm, I don't know about that. Let me do my own research on my own time um, and come back to you. And so if a therapist is open and affirming to the idea of kink, even if, even if they don't know the specifics, um, you, there's a lot of room for you to provide them resources. You shouldn't have to educate them, but you can provide them resources to educate themselves. Um, if you're reaching out to a new therapist and kink is something that you want to work on, I would say as you're reaching out to them, say up front, I want to work on kink. What is your experience? What is your comfort with kink? Or specific, like um, at the class that I taught at CLAW, someone mentioned that they were uh, a little and they went to a couple of kink affirming therapists who didn't really quite get being a little was. So it's totally okay when you're reaching out to say, hey, specifically, I'm an ABDL. What is your comfort level with this? Yeah. I mean, that's what I did my, with my therapist. I had had a therapist before him and we were going up over a bunch of different things and I just, I didn't feel comfortable saying it in which I've now learned that like therapists are like relationships. They're not all going to work. You just have to keep finding a new Absolutely. one before, before you find like the right one. And I was very upfront with my therapist when I, the current one that I have about like, you know, these are my kinks. This is what I want to work on. These are the things that bog my mind. And I honestly do think that helped a lot is that I was just, I laid out all of my laundry for him because mm -hmm. then he was able to respond to it. And, you know, he did say like, oh, I don't know what ABDL is, but, you know, I can look it up or something or, you know, maybe you can tell me about it and stuff. And it actually has been very helpful that it's, it feels like it's a two-way conversation now every time I meet him. Of, he's, he seems interested in what I want to talk about and vice versa. And it's, it feels healthy. I love that. And I love that you uh, 
named it up front uh, to me a good therapeutic relationship is a relationship so you can say you can give them feedback around i want you to look into this more or you said this and it feels bad for me that you blamed being an abdl on being spanked as a child or whatever a good therapeutic relationship will be able to have those conversations nice great i'm doing the right thing yeah uh, let's talk about you know what are the benefits of you know Yes, you may be kinky. Yes, you maybe want to talk about it, but let's go into like the benefits. What are ben what are the benefits of talking about kink to a therapist? Yeah, I think it depends on why you want to talk about kink in therapy. Um, I think of kind of four main reasons why people would talk about kink in therapy. First one is that it's just incidental. Um, this is the, yeah, I'm depressed at work. It doesn't really matter that I like to get fisted on Saturdays. Um, it, kink exists in your life you don't really have to talk about it in therapy. Um, then there's identity. So this is where I am. I don't have anything specific kink-wise that I need to process or function, but in order to understand me as a person, you have to understand my kinks and my relationships. Um, then there's processing. This is specifically, I need help working through this. I'm into something and I don't know what to do with it. I want to incorporate kink into my relationships and I'm not sure how. I'm afraid that my partner will feel some type of way about it. Um, and then finally, there's kink as a solution. And this is using elements of kink to inform uh, your care. So uh, when I work with kinky people, sometimes we really focus on headspace, um, like subspace, little space, puppy space, as a type of mindfulness and a type of relaxation. Um, there are some people who will use uh, kink as a way to in, uh, reclaim some power that they feel like they might have lost through uh, abuse or trauma. Um, and so, how you bring up kink depends on why you want to talk about it. Um, if it's more incidental, maybe you don't have to bring up kink. Um, if it's kink as a solution, maybe bring it up the first session and say, hey, you need to know this going in. This is what I'm dealing with. And here's what I'm thinking about it. Right. And I guess a lot of those things are things that you discover along the way, right? I know, at least for me as an ABDL, discovering that I enjoy being in a little headspace and kind of figuring out like, oh, I'm get to reclaim, you know, I think, a, I think a big story a lot of gay people have is like, you know, their childhood, they had to hide a lot of, right, depending on where you grew up, you didn't really have a childhood, you were kind of mimicking a childhood, or you were, you were fabricating what a childhood should have been. And then when you grow up, you're like, oh, I guess I never really had one, did I? And so yeah. I totally understand that aspect, but it's something, do you find that it's something that you don't discover until you're in these therapy sessions or you're just on the cusp before you start them? It so depends on where the person is at and their own personal journey. I find that a lot of therapy discussions are recursive. So it's the same conversation, but with so much more depth and nuance as time goes on. So a person coming in saying, hey, I'm a little and I wanna process what that means for me. We'll probably have the same number of conversation around what, what was your childhood like? What elements now do you want to recreate? Um, but the ways, just the amount of time in the relationship that we have and the things they discover about themselves, the conversation will look very different as time goes on, even if it's fundamentally the same topics of conversation. Let's talk about identity for a second, because before the interview, I kind of brought up like, how do you balance your kink identity with your pedestrian identity? And, you know, we, we were talking about how kinks are able kinks allow us to process trauma or process things that are going on with us and so we might live in a kinks right kink spaces feel good they make us mm -hmm. feel good they're pleasurable 
is there a healthy balance between kink and identity? Yes, there is. And it that balance depends on who you are and what you want from life. So um, as a person who is kinky and also works with kink professionally, a lot of my life is in that kink identity. Um, and so I found this balance of kink and pedestrian where they're really blurry and merged. Really, I'm most pedestrian when around my family. And even then, they know about kink, we just don't really talk about kink. Um, for some people, it's totally okay to say like, yeah, I go to a gear party every Saturday night and that's my only kink and that's a good balance for them. Um, what I look for is uh, levels of distress. So do you feel like you're hiding too much of yourself or you're too engaged in kink? You're not able to do other tasks throughout your life. Um, is there relational things that are going on for you? Um, and are you doing it safely? Um, and safe is kind of a broad term, but in ways that um, allow you to live the life that you want to have. I feel like I'm going through them right now, but are there indicators that one might be feeling if they are not engaging enough in their kink identity? Because mm. I feel like I am experiencing that now that I'm kind of becoming more engaged in the community and stuff is I feel like if I don't, if I don't wear, you know, at least once a month, or if I don't mm. meet another kinky person, I kind of feel deprived and and moody and all that is that a real thing is that thing is that something that like gets discussed in therapy um with a good therapist absolutely it can be um so i said you asked if i'm a switch i only sub for my sir and for uh he lives in a different state so it's kind of a long distance relationship and um for a while i was like ooh, i want to explore the side of myself more but i don't know how it was feeling weird and then I met up with my sir. We had a great weekend. He was at Claw with me. Um, and after I came back, I didn't really feel the need to go exploring my subside with anyone else. I feel satisfied. It feels like a good balance for me. And so it, the signs are just, do you feel bad about it? Do you feel like something's missing? Um, and how much you need depends on you. And kind of once that feeling gets minimized or goes away completely, that's when you know you found a balance for yourself. It's also not a static state. It's not like, okay, I wore once a month. And so that's my plan for the rest of time. Maybe that's fine. Or maybe your needs will change as life happens. Right, right, exactly. And I guess, you know, the only reason I think about it now is because, you know, I feel like since I've been going to therapy, I've become conscious about what I'm feeling and stuff, but we don't mm -hmm. all have the pleasure of going to therapy. Are there signs or feelings that you might not be engaging in your kink mm. enough, or you might not be, yeah, I think that's the question I wanna ask, that you're not engaging in your kink enough. Something that I find generally is people are not tuned into what's going on in their bodies. So a lot of the work that I do in early stages of therapy is how is your body feeling? Your body is so, the emotions that we feel are stored in our body and then our brain makes sense of them later. So if you're feeling tightness in your chest and some energy in your body, we label that as anxiety. Um, if you're feeling really low, really heavy, we might label that as depression. Um, and so step one is just tuning into your body and saying, am I actually, oh, I'm more nervous than I realized I, I was. Um, I'm feeling more depressed than I was. It's not always a sign directly about kink, but I, I think through just honest conversation for yourself saying, what is missing in my life? I'm feeling this way. What do I need to feel more complete in this way, kink is one of the possible answers.
if I can't go see a therapist, if I am feeling a anxiousness or a de or a depressed state, is there mm -hmm. a is there something that I can do to self analyze, kind of sit mm. with myself a little bit? Is is there a is there a technique? I know you gave like the finger thing to be you know ground myself. Is there another technique you can give? Um, journaling. So so much of our when we think of thoughts, how do we think? Um, it's not we do not think in a linear subject predicate sentence. It's kind of this map of ideas that kind of bounds between. So slowing things down enough by by saying things out loud or by journaling is a really good way of, of having these conversations with yourself saying, hmm, I'm feeling anxious right now. I think it comes from this place. And, and when we slow our thoughts down and engage in that way, it allows us to have more nuanced conversations with ourselves as opposed to just thought, 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 thought that are kind of disconnected. Right. I love that journal. No, I, I journal too. My therapist told me to journal too. And it, and it has be it has been helpful. It's kind of weird at first because you're like, dear, I almost gave away my, my real name. <laughs> um, you know, dear Newsy, you know, um, here's what's happening in my life. It's, it's something that, uh, you know, you have to work on. Mm -hmm. And it takes a little bit of time, but then you kind of get used to it. Yeah. Something if people are struggling with journaling, not everyone, that's the best way that they process. Um, I'll have people just record voice notes on their phone and just speak out loud sentences that way. And that's sometimes more accessible for people than just putting pen to paper. So you talked about kink as a solution. And one of those ways of doing that is through Headspace. Mm. How do you, why is Headspace a solution and how do you get into it? So this is not backed up by research necessarily there's uh, kink as a academic topic of uh, interest is only is pretty new um so there's some studies that are pointing towards this um, but i conceptualize headspace as a form of mindfulness um and uh we there is a lot of research on mindfulness mindfulness has so many different health benefits for mental health for physical health for just existing in the world um i Headspace is the cornerstone of how I understand kink. Um, it allows us to, to experience life in a different way, to experience different versions of ourselves. Um, my puppy headspace, for instance, is playful. It's this unbridled joy. It's kind of all of the ideals that I would love to inhabit every day that I can't because being a human is hard. Um, so be able to experience those things um, is so beneficial. It allows us to understand ourselves better. It allows us to understand the world better. Um, and different people can have different headspaces. I know people who have a little headspace and a puppy headspace and a submissive headspace, right? Like all of these are different versions of ourselves that we get to explore. Um, as far as how to do it, that is so subjective to the person. Um, for me, one of my favorite things to do as an alpha puppy is to get new pups into headspace for the first time. Um, and so it's a lot of gentleness it's a lot of playfulness it's a lot of um gear is not necessary for any kind of headspace but feeling different parts of your body in different ways can be really helpful to getting out of human mode um so putting on my puppyhood just changes my relationship to my face everything feels different when i'm wearing my puppyhood and that is a good indication for me that it's okay to get into headspace um people who are into impact 
contact play, which is what uh, subspace is the most researched form of headspace because there's a very physical endorphin rush and change when you are being beaten. Um, you just kind of have to play around with the headspace, be around people who know about it, um, see what feels good and right for you. Um, unfortunately, there's not really a guide to it. Um, it just depends on what you need and what you want. But it seems like the overarching theme is a form of a form of routine, right? Mm. So like for me, it's putting on a diaper. For you, it sounds like it's putting on putting on gear. Or if you don't have gear, it's doing something that might trigger going into um, you know, a pup space, right? Whether that be on getting on your knees and your and your knuckles or something like that. Or maybe, or maybe, you know, it just sounds like a routine is the baseline of kind of yeah. getting into a headspace. You just have to get out of the current experience of yourself. So right now I just finished work today. I'm still kind of in work mode. Um, I'm using my work voice. I can tell um, to get into a puppy space from here, I would probably do a routine, do a ritual of taking off my clothes and putting on gear and, and telling my body I'm shifting from work mode to puppy mode. Nice. And I, you know, I, one thing that I noticed about myself is how do you do that when you involve another, when you involve another person, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like for me, I could do it on my own, but as soon as I get with an, another person, it's almost like, oh no, like another person is here. Is that, is that a normal thing about headspaces is maybe it's harder to get into one when you're with another person, especially if it's a new play partner? It absolutely can be. Um, Anxiety is one of the biggest uh, roadblocks to any kind of headspace. Um, there are, I also know some people where it's the verse where they can only be in headspace when someone else is there because it feels so vulnerable they need someone else protecting them from it. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what about it feels difficult when there's another person there for you? I guess, oh gosh. Um, I guess I've just always engaged in this kink by myself and so mm -hmm. when i have the opportunity to be with another person there's this like anxiety of like i want it to be perfect mm. or, like i want it to go a, a different way and a big thing that my therapist and i are working on is and we've phrased it as i write the play before it is written mm. which is mm -hmm. basically i foresee what a scene is going to look like before it even starts that is a big problem of mine mm -hmm. and so working on grounding techniques is kind of helpful but I've i've yet to do it with another play partner. I've yet to really fully engage in the headspace with another play partner. At least I feel like I have. Yeah. Again, what I hear you talking about is trust. It, to be able to let go in that way and just fully immerse yourself in a headspace requires a level of trust in the other person and also in yourself to say, I don't know how this scene is going to go. I have ideas. I have uh, things that I'd like to experience, but whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I'm okay with that. And to give up that control, um, can be really scary and there's a reason that i imagine the anxiety that you experience comes from somewhere it makes sense that this is coming up and it's also okay to try to let go of some of that yes i have trust issues who doesn't oh my god it's so hard to be a person it is it's so yes it is very hard it is yeah yeah it's very hard to be a person it's hard to be just being uh let's talk about you know solutions through community because mm. I think that is a huge aspect of, you know, and that's something that I'm personally 
learning is, you know, I've done this kink by myself for so long that like engaging with a community helps helps in a lot of ways. Is that it, would you agree that community is a huge part of the solution process? Absolutely. Uh, I, the current experience of being a human in America is hyper individualistic, where it's you got to fix your own stuff, you got to work on you. Um, and that's not the way that humans were really meant to be. We are inherently social relational creatures. And so what I love about kink is it allows us to find relationships and build relationships, build community, find community in ways that kind of break out of these pre-written scripts um, that are handed to us around, okay, well, you, if you're in a relationship, it has to be monogamous and it has to be your only partner. You have to love them more than anyone else. And like, that's, that works for some people. That's not true for a lot of people. Um, my therapist uh, is fond of saying community is a feeling. Um, and I really appreciate that because it's not just like, okay, I know Gary and Mark and Paul and, and Luke, but it's, I have a support of people around me who understand these different facets of myself. And I'm allowed to be a multifaceted complex human being in relationship to all of these people. And I feel supported and held in that. I feel that a whole, a whole hundred percent. Cause I've noticed, you know, I have a, a vanilla Instagram and a kink Instagram and I am on my kink Instagram. I'm on my kink Twitter. 80% more than I am on my vanilla one, but that's because I feel more of myself mm. in those spaces. And that's like another thing I feel like I've brought up to you before is kind of like, you know, I enjoy being newsy more than I enjoy being my pedestrian self. And so that's why I kind of asked that question of like, is there a healthy balance? Yeah. I, I describe myself as puppy all the time. Um, even when I'm working I'm about two steps above puppy headspace. Um, I just carry that with me all the time. And people who know the puppy side of me know me so much more than other people ever will. Um, not to denigrate those relationships, it's just a fundamental part of how I understand myself. And so to feel seen and supported in that is so much, it's so deeply affirming. All right, now I got a hard question for you. So what happens if you live in a space that you feel like you can't be puppy? Or you mm. live in a space or in a town or in a part of the country where being puppy, being a baby, being ABDL probably wouldn't benefit you. What mm. do you say to that? One, that's rough. That's hard. If you are, if these are parts of yourself that you know mean a lot to you and you feel like that's not accessible either by yourself or in a social setting, it feels really hard to not be able to access that. And just to recognize that it's hard is important. Um, there are things that you can do on your own. Um, you named that being a baby for you is mostly a solo activity that you're just exploring other things with other people. Um, being able to find ways to be okay with it on your own. While it's not, it's not say it's a solution, it's gonna fix this perfectly, but say I can also, I can still explore it in these ways. Um, and finding community online or if possible at in-person events, even if they're small, even if it's infrequent, those kinds of things really mean a lot and allows us to maintain this thread of continuity of ourselves. Yeah, I know. I've had daydreams lately of like doing my own event up here in in Santa Barbara where I currently live because there's I don't I'm pretty sure there's kinky people around me. It just feels like no one no one expresses it 
Mm. So I've been going over this idea in my head, like maybe I just need to be the catalyst and just like express it more on Grinder or on Scruff and say like, here's me. This is what I'm more comfortable with. Maybe someone will find me. Yeah. If that feels safe and accessible to you, I think that's brilliant. Community has to start somewhere. And if you have the capacity, if you have the safety, if you have the agency to do so, standing up and saying, this is me who wants to join me can be so powerful for you and for people around you. Right. And I think that's also one of, right? That's also one of your solutions, right? Uh, freedom of expression and reclaiming power, right? That's mm -hmm. one of, those are part of those solutions. Absolutely. There you go. Let's talk about aftercare. How important is aftercare when it comes to kinks? Aftercare is important for everything. Um, this is one of the things that I utilize most in all different types of therapy, kinky or not. Um, I literally will have couples for couples therapy say, we don't know how to talk about money. It's always a stressful fight. And we, we talk about it and we work through it. And then I say, okay, now what's your aftercare? You've talked about this, you did good work this conversation's done, but your emotions are still really heightened. So how do you take care of yourself after this pretty significant experience? Um, aftercare is important so much. The more aftercare, I cannot stress this enough. Care for yourself, take care of yourself, drink water more so than you think you need. Um, aftercare is important all of the time. Anytime you feel like you have an intense emotional experience, intense physical experience, take some time to rest and care for yourself. I think kink does that really beautifully and teaches people how to do it and to incorporate it regularly into a practice. You can also expand that to other areas of your life. Yeah, I'm kind of blown away that you brought up like something that's not kink related, like fin finances or like an argument. And yeah, that's totally, you no, know, you're 100% right that like after an argument, there should be aftercare. It's weird that we've associated aftercare with just a kink where it could be used as a tool outside. Yeah. I was taught about aftercare primarily through impact play and saying you've had this pretty like physically intense experience of all these endorphins in your body. And just because this is done, your body's still reacting to it, which is totally true. Your body's still reacting to things like intense financial conversations. Your body's still reacting to things like uh, you took a test and didn't go well, you feel sad about it. All of these things, your body's still reacting to. And so aftercare is just a way of taking care of your body, taking care of your emotions and saying, let's transition from this heightened emotional state to a, a calm, safe resting space. And you brought up some of those aftercares, right? Drinking water, breathing. Are there any others that one might do after a heightened sense? Um, I'm a big fan of snacks, um, working the blood sugar and then um, stretching, re-engaging with your body as, as it is capable of doing. Um, whether it's kink and you have like a pretty intense bondage scene or whether it's, Ooh, I have a lot of anxiety in my chest. I'm still feeling stuff. Just engaging with your body as a holistic experience um, is, is really important. I love it. Let's move on now to, I had some listener questions and one of them was if I'm ashamed of my kink, how do I process that? Mm. I, I would first ask, where is that shame coming from? What narratives have have you internalized that are informing the shame? Um, I'm thinking specifically of, I have uh, a friend who has a lot of shame around being an ABDL, and it's because they've been told by people uh, in the broader King community and also just from 
people outside of the community that it's connected to pedophilia, right? And for them, it's very not. They're so afraid of any kind of association with that, that there's this deep level of shame. So recognizing what is informing the shame, what, what narratives are coming from it, and then starting to dissect it to say like, okay, well, yes, normies might say diapers, baby, that's bad. That makes me uncomfortable. But you don't have to take that on for yourself. Um, you can say, well, the, I know the way that I do this is not at all connected to that. I know that my truth is this, the way that I interact with people is this thing. And it's so not what the shame narrative is informing me. Or maybe it is. Maybe the shame comes from a real place and it is directly connected to King. For me, I have a significant amount of religious trauma because um, I grew up really conservatively and very religiously. Um, and I now have some interest in like blasphemy King. Um, and there is a, a level of shame in that for me because I know if people were to find out, it would cause some rupture in relationships. It would I would not necessarily, I wouldn't regret it, but I'd feel very weird about it. And it's just finding peace. Like this is going to be a part of my experience with this. I don't have to let it dominate it, but it's going to be here. And I've made peace with that. I'm so, what is blasphemy kink? Just give me a good satanic scene and I'm happy. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, not you like walking around town, like shame. <laughs> okay. You know, that is not my kink, but I'm sure it's a kink for somebody out there. Um, no, Game this of is, Thrones kink, little dragon writing. I, uh, I did write for Easter a, uh, a blasphemous sermon all about why masturbation is really uh, my religion. And that was very fun for me. So it, it is a little, uh, it can go all sorts of different directions. You know what? I recently got into gooning and solo sexual and all that fun. And... Mm -hmm. That's literally a religion. I mean, there's terminology. I mean, all kinks have their own terminology and everything, but like talk about going really deep into like your own self-pleasure. I mean, mm -hmm. gooners know themselves. They know their penises inside and out. Yes. I mean, yeah. I, my experience with the Bader community generally was really informative of understanding myself as a sexual being. Yeah, and, and how to like self-pleasure yourself. I think that's also something I we don't have all the time in the world, but that's like another thing that I feel like we're, we're not taught how to self-pleasure ourselves, right? As a kid, it's, it, if you think about it, at least for me growing up, masturbating was at midnight with the door shut, with AirPods in, being very quiet, trying not to make any noise at pos any noise possible. Mm -hmm. And I would suspect that I, my experience is similar to a whole bunch of other people, right? We're, like self-pleasuring at its beginning is a, is an, a shameful, is a shameful thing, especially since I grew up in a religious household. Yeah. A big part of the work that I do, especially around with kinky people is focusing on pleasure as the main purpose of engaging with sexuality. And a lot of people will take issue with that just up front because we're taught that sex is shameful or dirty or bad and or to focus on pleasure somehow like disrespectful or too hedonistic or whatever it's like it, you are allowed to feel pleasure end of sentence that is okay and it's okay thing to want to feel pleasurable period yeah um no the the other thing because we brought up um being shameful and a, a big a big thing that my therapist brought up to me was when I was describing ABDL, I would always begin the sentence with, it's this, but it's not that. Mm. It's, it's, I enjoy this, 
but it's not this. And he stopped me one day and he was like, you need to stop doing that. And I was like, why? And he's like, because you're you're so you you don't want to be ashamed of this kink, but you paint this picture, you paint a very shameful picture. He was mm-hmm. so one of the things he he advised and that I've been trying to do more often is just saying, I enjoy this. Period. Mm-hmm. Let the other person do whatever they want with that information. And then that informs what my relationship is to that person. Absolutely. It also informs your relationship to your understanding of yourself. I think that's beautiful. I, I call that cutting out the caveats. And I love that. Yeah. Hard to do. Uh, we, we were talking about, um, you know, childhood trauma. And another listener question I had was, does childhood trauma affect interests in kink? Probably. Um, sexuality generally is so multifaceted, so complex that yes, it probably does. But to focus on saying you like being beaten because you were spanked as a child, I feel is so oversimplistic. I think there is, depending on what's coming up for you, there is some usefulness to investigating, like, how does this experience inform where I'm at now? But that also doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Like I named, uh, I enjoy a good amount of blasphemy because of my traumatic experiences. And that's okay. I, it comes from this place of trauma, both specific experiences and just general experiences. But just because it comes from that place doesn't mean that I don't have to like it. I, I'm allowed to enjoy this. I find pleasure in this still. And that pleasure is all that I need to focus on right now. I find in uh, not necessarily kink-aware therapists and discussions of kink generally, there tends to be an overfocus on what happened in childhood to inform where you're at now. And I find that often is more harmful than helpful. And then lastly, one last listener question. How do you overcome social anxiety? Right, the um, act of meeting other kinky people. Yeah. Let me know if you ever figured that one out. Um, <laughs> It's an overarching I, problem for everyone. Yeah. I mean, first of all, just that everyone, almost everyone feels anxious meeting new people, going out to new spaces, being vulnerable in this way. And knowing that everyone else feels bad or feels anxious might be helpful. Um, the other part is to, I learned this a lot from drag. First of all, I mean this with all the love. No one really is looking at you um, for the most part. And so you are largely you were able to blend in more than you feel like you're able to. Um, and also to recognize that some of these scripts, some of these fears, even if they come from realistic places, aren't grounded in the present reality. So a lot of my social anxiety comes from experiences of high school. My, my narratives are uh, everyone hates me, everyone's laughing at me, and just no one's going to tell me about it, which has happened in my life. But the people that I'm around now, the communities that I've created for myself and found for myself, that's not really what's going to happen. And I still feel that way sometimes. I still recognize that anxiety, but to, to be able to check myself and say, that's not what's going to happen. I know my boyfriend's going to tell me if something's weird. I know my friends are going to call me up the second I step out of line because they're messy bitches. Like having these experiences, uh, having these counter narratives can be really helpful. The other part is just exposure. Like going out to a bar the first time, you might feel like you're going to die. You're not going to, but you might feel that way. The second time might feel a little bit less scared and a little bit less scared and maybe it'll never go away, but you learn to cope with it through experience. Yes. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. You took the words out of my mouth, especially since, um, 
you're totally right. Going to bars is a very anxious thing for me. Um, but repetition, going to the same bar, you know, was definitely a helpful thing. And then someone taught, someone told me one day where at a bar, everyone there is alone. And if you go in with that mentality, it's not as scary, right? You might see pockets of people talking, but you don't know if they just met that night. You don't know if they just met on Grinder 10 minutes before showing it. You don't know. So <laughs> if you go in thinking everyone is here alone, you're part of the norm, whatever norm means. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely helped me going to bars and going to social situations is thinking like, you know, we're all alone. We're all seeking, we're all seeking a community or a togetherness so as long as i have that in mind it's not as scary yeah my personal uh trick for talking to people who i don't know because it's one thing to just go into the environment it's another thing to like start talking to people my trick is to find something that they have chosen about their appearance and say wow i really like that wow you wearing a, a little pause diaper that's very cute um, wow, I really like this rubber shirt you wore. Wow, you have bright pink hair. That's super cool. I really like that thing. Um, people like to be noticed. People like to be complimented. Um, and that is a really good icebreaker. You have an in right away. Yeah, and it's so easy. It is so mm -hmm. easy. And that's something that I try to do at, at Diaper Active is I, which is a ABDL event in LA is, you know, people just want to be noticed, right? Mm -hmm. They want to be seen. And so, and, you know, I already have anxiety talking to like strangers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Why I do a podcast, who knows? Um, <laughs> but, but like, you know, recognizing something on, on someone of what they're wearing or what they might have post, they're being seen, they feel validated, and then they get the validation of that. And then I get the validation of not thinking that I'm antisocial and I've, you know, I've come out and I've started talking to people. Yeah. And even if it's just that one interaction and say, hey, nice type and they go with things and that's it. That's a good social interaction. And for me, it's like, okay, I had a good social interaction. I'm good for the day. I, I did the thing. I checked the list. You don't have to make this super deep friendship right away. It's okay just to start interacting with people. Right. That's a, that's another huge thing. We don't have to go over it, but like, um, you know, friendships aren't built in a day. They're built over multiple interactions. And so that is something that I'm currently working on is like, Friendships don't sprout like grass. It kind of takes a little longer, but mm -hmm. it takes like that nurturing and caring aspect of it. Absolutely. So in wrapping up, you brought up uh, kink aware professionals. That's the one place to find a kink therapist. So once I find a therapist, are, is there anything I need to know? Any questions I should be asking? Yeah. Um, Again, it depends on what you're looking for and what you need, but fundamentally a therapist relationship, as much as, as much as it is a real relationship, they are there for you. It's about your mental health. It's about you. So it's okay to ask them questions. They might not ask a friend. Um, it's okay to be like, what is your experience with this? Um, what is your comfort level? If, if I want to talk about non-monogamy, how do you feel about that? Um, also things about just like logistical things, like what insurance do you take? How much are sessions? Um, especially in the pandemic era, do you see people online? Do you see people in person? Do you see people in a mix of them? Um, I have, uh, I posted my slides from CLAW um, with all of the information that I have and there's a 
I put in there the email that I wrote to my therapist when I reached out and it's like, hi, here's a little bit about me. Here's my insurance. I found you in the Keep Aware Professionals Network. Um, basically it's what, if a person is going to be seeing you and working with you and your mental health, what do you think it's important for them to know? That's kind of the framing that I go with. And that's so important too. I mean, the insurance thing gives me anxiety already because I've heard horror stories where you go see a therapist, maybe like two or three times and then all of a sudden you're not covered anymore or you know things change and mm -hmm. why 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 healthcare why i could go on for hours about that it's terrible uh, and then i guess in wrapping up and i could have brought this up in the beginning but i guess i'll bring it up now is who would benefit from a kink knowledgeable therapist mm -hmm. If you feel like you would benefit from it, you probably would. Um, a kink knowledgeable therapist is a person who understands the vocabulary of kink, who understands community aspects, even if they don't know specifically ABDL or puppy play, they're versed enough in it. To me, anyone, the, we talked about the four different types of talking about kink and therapy, incidental identity processing and kink as a solution. Anything beyond incidental, you would probably benefit from having a kink aware therapist, a kink knowledgeable therapist. If it's identity, if it's processing, if it's kink as a solution, all of these require someone who knows about kink and is able to talk in these spaces with some fluency um, about kink. Do you think every kinky person needs a therapist? I think every person needs a therapist. Um, not every kinky person I think needs a kinky therapist. Again, if, if it's a thing you do on the weekends and it's kind of separate and you feel okay with it and you feel stable with it, maybe you don't need a kinky therapist. Um, but yeah, I think every person needs a therapist. I think at the basis of it, every person just needs someone to, to talk, to talk to, right. It just lay it all out, but with a person that's not involved. Right. I, and I think that's the most important thing for me in talking to a therapist is I'm able to discuss things and he's not involved. In my life. So I'm getting a, I'm able to throw things out and he's able to say like, oh, well talk to, I don't understand. Tell me more. Or have you thought about it this way? Or like, why are you doing it this right? Like he's able to throw it back at me. Mm -hmm. Whenever I throw at him, he throws it back and I'm able to think about like, oh, I guess why do I, why do I do it that way? Or like, why do I think that way? Or why am I doing it this way? And so I personally think at the base of basis of it. That's why therapy is so important. I always, I always recommend it to people if, if they can get it. Yeah. It's absolutely a privileged thing as well. It's not accessible to everyone. Right. And I don't know anyone who has not benefited from a good therapist. Like if, if they find a therapist and it's a good match and they're a good therapist, people always benefit in my experience. Right. There you go. Well, thank you, Alpha Pup Red, for coming to Newsy's Nook. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. I will have links to Alpha Pup Red's presentation slides and to the Kink Awareness Professionals website in the show notes. All right, kiddos, I'm officially soggy. I need to go change. See ya. Bye. <laughs>
how to read? I don't know how to read, but I heard Playtime has a new bi-weekly online kink magazine. It's called Playzine. Yeah, I heard if I knew how to read, I could read about different fetish lifestyles, events, entertainment, and news. I guess I gotta go to the Playtime website to practice my reading skills.